If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than 4 billion in company approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity. I am Crunchbase News' Alex Wilhelm, and this week I am with TechCrunch's own Kate Clark. Kate, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm actually kind of sick, but we're going to get through this because it is a Thursday and therefore it's equity time. Um, as a programming note, our regular crew are kind of off at Disrupt Berlin. So the two of us are once again holding down the fort, um, but happily we have about a billion numbers to get through. Uh, so let's do that. The biggest news this week that uh, snagged our eye was the Asana round. Um, it was a $50 million Series E at a $1.5 billion valuation. Uh, Kate, up top, were you surprised to see them raise so quickly, given that their E, sorry, their D round was in January of this year? You know, so Sasana is not a company that I usually cover because workplace collaboration software is not the most thrilling of industries. But I can't say I was too surprised to see that they raised so quickly from their last round. I mean, so many companies this year, just given the market, have been raising round after round in very close proximity to each other. So I can't say. It was too surprising, but they've certainly had a really, really good 2018. Yeah, yeah, it seems so. But on the point of companies trying to raise down quick succession, uh, are you hearing that companies are trying to kind of like put stuff away for a potential winter? Because that's what I'm hearing, that people are trying to raise Mm -hmm. more and more frequently. Yeah. So when you hear that, what, what, what do people say? I mean, I think a lot of VCs that I've talked to have said that they encourage their portfolio companies to get out there and at least take meetings because they have been getting so much inbound you know, inbound requests to meet from investors because investors are also just, there's just so much capital going around. So I think, I think a lot of companies are like bracing for a market downturn and are raising round after round to sort of prepare for that. But I think there are other companies that take a different approach. It just depends. Well, it also depends on how much money you're currently burning. And if you have a hundred million in the bank, why bother take the dilution now? But um, Asana raised a $75 million D in January of this year. So that means they put $125 million uh, into their bank throughout the year in 2018, which is a huge amount of money because the company's only raised $213 million total. So they've raised way more than half of their total capital this year. And I was a little skeptical of, of that. It seemed pretty aggressive, but the company also dropped some uh, interesting growth metrics that I thought I'd run us through uh, really quick. So they did not share hard revenue numbers because that would have made our job too easy uh, to actually understand where they are. Uh, so instead, they did kind of the Amazon thing of showing like a relative chart. Um, and here's kind of what they said. Their revenue growth rate is now at 90% year over year, which is pretty good for a company of presumable scale. And uh, here's the little caveat to that. It has accelerated. The growth rate has accelerated in each of the past six quarters, um, which is actually quite impressive. That's a lot of that growth. Is- Mm-hmm. And I think that I read that around like earlier this year or late last year, they were between like 60 and 90 million ARR according to like Inc or something. So that means they're probably over the 100 million ARR mark somewhere in there, uh, which makes their $1.5 billion valuation they got on this E round somewhat reasonable. I think that's that's not too aggressive, I don't think. Kate. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, I also read they have 50,000 paying customers. And I also read the same thing that you said that they've for like six or seven consecutive qu- consecutive quarters had pretty amazing growth. So I think their valuation actually seems reasonable, which is not something that I almost ever say about technology startups because most of their valuations are completely ridiculous. 
Yeah, and, and the reason why I wanted to point that out is not to be rude to other companies, but it's because normally speaking, when we see a company raise a smaller successive round, it's a bearish sign. Uh, and so to see them raise a $50 million Series E after a $75 million Series D would normally to me be a bit of a red flag. But given that the the growth metrics they've shared, I can't really be pessimistic about this, even though I do really wish they would drop an actual uh, like hard revenue number. Yeah, I think it's probably just more of a strategic thing, less about the business actually suffering. Yeah, I don't think they actually needed the money. If I had to guess, I just think they could go ahead and get it. Um, but for everyone's uh, for everyone's delectation, I pulled some uh, investor names. So, <laughs> Silicon Valley Angel, SV Angel, Andrews uh, and Horowitz, and Benchmark were in the seed, and then the A round. Founders Fund joined in the B. So, I think those are probably the companies, sorry, the investing groups that have done the best in the Asana growth to date. Um, and I just have I have one last thing about this, Kate. We don't talk about Asana ever. I feel like it just doesn't doesn't come up that much, but they've been growing quite quickly. But like Slack, for example, is is, is chronically in our conversation, at least for me, in and around the valley. Why do you think we just don't talk about Asana? Are they just like growing elsewhere, or are they yeah, quieter? That's a, that's a really good point because when this Asana news broke this morning, I, I for a minute I was like, why do I never write about this company, and why do I never think about it? It's like Slack dominates so many of the conversations in Silicon Valley. I. I mean, you know, Slack is a much larger company with a much larger valuation. That could be a large part of why it gets so much buzz. And maybe because um, Slack's CEO is also a bit more of a character in the Valley that sort of brings in press coverage. As And Asana, I mean, even though it is founded by one of the Facebook co-founders, it still somehow manages to fly very much under the radar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do like it's Dustin Moskovitz is the uh, the Facebook co-founder. And also um, Justin Rosenstein is also an ex-Facebook guy. So it has a lot of kind of Facebook credo. Um, and, and honestly, they're both really nice. Uh, you know, I, I've covered Asana in the past, so I've met them and they're just kind of nice people. So I, I'm i excited about this. I think it's a cool round. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really have anything negative to say for once. So I think I'll just kind of scoot us along into something <laughs> a little bit less positive. Um, sticking close to the unicorns, though, Airbnb finally has a new CFO, which is big news for a couple of reasons, right? Yeah, Airbnb has replaced um, a much needed uh, C-suite spot, their CFO position with um, Dave Stevenson. They had uh, Lawrence Tosi, who was the previous CFO, step down in February because he wanted to focus on his own investment firm. And I think also because he had different ideas about where to take the company than does uh, CEO Brian Chesky. So they uh, hired an a longtime Amazon exec to run their finances ahead of what's likely going to be a 2019 IPO, although I would absolutely not bet money on that happening. Um, But yeah, so this is another Amazon executive to kind of jump over into the Silicon Valley startup universe from Amazon. Uh, There's been quite a few. Uh, Greg Greeley was a head of Prime at Amazon, and he joined Airbnb as well earlier this year um, to head up the company's home division. And then there's been a number of others and a few outlets kind of put together lists. And some of that's uh, Jason Warnick of Robinhood, who's uh, just joined this week as their CFO from Amazon. And then there's um, Asaf Ronin, who joined SoFi, Sophie? SoFi, yeah. SoFi, yeah. As a head of product. And then... um, uh, Dia and Co. also has an Amazon exec who recently joined, um, Francis 
Nizoyton. I don't know how to pronounce that, but yeah, there, there's a lot. So it's, it's interesting to see that Amazon, though, has not necessarily created as many founders as some companies like that have. It does seem to have created a lot of executives who have been able to help a lot of um, these uh, high-flying startups move toward you know more serious directions like the public markets. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the by the pace of recent Amazon defections to startups that are very high profile. Because SoFi and Robinhood and Airbnb, these are all worth you know handfuls of billions or, or over ten billion dollars. They're huge companies. Um, and so, a couple of questions: Does Amazon just have too many executives that they can lose so many so frequently? Or two, did Amazon share prices rise so quickly that everyone kind of was like, "Cool, cash out," and I'm going to go take a risk now on a much more speculative company? Or is Amazon's work culture just as I don't know, tough as people often say that it is. But for whatever reason, uh, they certainly have shed a lot of talent into these other companies, which is great for, I mean, like Robinhood, I, I think it's great they've got some people now that have a lot of experience in big number domains because Robinhood does want to go public, right? It's got an enormous valuation, like what was it five or six billion uh, last time it raised. So it has a huge, um, huge shoes to fill. Yeah, I think it's the first thing you said about Amazon. It just has a lot of it has a lot of executives. It really does. I mean, for one, it's a really large company, but it also has so many different branches that have that each have their own individual leaders who have essentially are getting experience experience as CEOs, despite not actually really being a CEO of the company. So there's so many of them, and I think uh, you know, in part, Amazon does is said to have had to have a pretty intense culture, and I think you know a lot of these people probably do want to experience the you know working at a at a startup, at a you know a big unicorn startup, because it's exciting and it's probably a nice change of pace from working you know in at Amazon for especially twenty years at Amazon. Yeah, and also once you join a unicorn, there's a lot of momentum in place. It's not as risky as joining a Series A company or a seed stage company. You know, you're not going to lose all of your perks and status. You're still going to be pretty well treated, I presume, at a Robin Hood or a SoFi or you know whatever you oh, have. Yeah, and I mean because they have millions and millions of venture backing, they can also offer. I'm sure these executives a lot of money. It's going to be attractive. I mean, you don't walk away from a high placed job at a Fortune what six company or whatever the hell Amazon is uh, if there's not a pretty good package. Because there's always start uh, sorry stories in startup land of you know hot startup hires some suit from some company who's big, and that person shows up and gets just culture shocked and then leaves because the change from moving from a you know an enterprise scale company to a fast-growing startup can be shocking if you're not uh, kind of ready for it. But these companies are probably a lot more mature. They're probably more set up. And so it's probably an easier transition. But I wouldn't, you know, I don't see Amazon execs leaving to join you know, a company that just raised its $10 million A round, right? I mean, no, that's I can't imagine. I not going to happen. <laughs> Think about the risk, Kate. Jeez. Um, well, sticking on the topic of large unicorns or what we now occasionally call decacorns, which means mm -hmm. 10. So a company's worth 10 billion or more. And uh, if you don't like the phrase decacorn, uh, come up with a better one and I'll use it. But until then, it's going to be decacorns. There's going to be, well, potentially, because Kate already threw some cold water on this, there may be a number of decacorn IPOs next year. And to put this in perspective, there were at least two this year. There was the Dropbox IPO, which did pretty well. And then there was the Spotify direct listing, which wasn't really an IPO. It was just kind of a debut. Uh, but next year, there could be as many as four that we kind of have our eyes on because the companies have either made noise about it, promised it, or it's strongly rumored. And I want to talk first about Pinterest, which is a company that rarely comes up on this show. And you know, I feel like we talked a lot 
about more, you know, two or three years ago when it was kind of back in its hyper growth uh, stage on the user front. But Pinterest has quietly, besides building a new office very near the TechCrunch office, ironically, um, really been growing on the revenue side. And it's expected, people are expecting it to go public uh, next year, kind of in the middle of the year, uh, per the reporting I've seen most recently. Um, kind of about time, I want to say. Uh, but Kate, if you had to guess, if you hadn't have known ahead of time, how much would you say Pinterest was worth if you just had to kind of guess its valuation um, without looking it up? Uh, I mean, that's that's tough because I, I know what it is. But if I had to, I mean, I would definitely underestimate Pinterest. I It, it always surprises me that it is one of the most valuable, you know, US tech technology, private technology companies. I mean, it it's... Certainly of the four companies we're about to talk about, it's one whose IPO I am the most unsure of. Tell me about that unsureness or lack of certainty, because do you mean, is it going to go well or are you just not sure what's going to be inside of that S1 when it eventually drops? It's not so much about being unsure of what's going to be in the S1. I do think that they have you know a, a pretty good business. It's just surprising that it has such a high valuation, I think, because of you know, what I know Pinterest to be, which is this, you know, app, visual search engine app. And it's it's hard to imagine how much it can scale. I think they have figured out some pretty cool things and they definitely are, you know, they're still growing so much and adding new, new tools. I think one of the most recent add-ons was like just helping users be able to shop easier on the app because that's what people want to do on Pinterest. Which makes a lot of sense as a product, but I've really buried the lead here. Pinterest, um, according to the last venture round, was worth $12.35 billion. It was a $150 million raised, uh, raise on a $12.2 pre-money valuation. So if you were guessing less than $10 billion, you're wrong. Uh, if you were close, 10 points to you, listener, you're my favorite. Um, so why why is it worth that much? Uh, I, I have some numbers for us because I want to point out that this is not as crazy as it may sound if you're behind on Pinterest's growth. So what I did was I aggregated some numbers from around the internet going back to like 2015 uh, to talk about revenue growth. So really quickly, I'll try to keep this brief. Back in 2015, uh, Pinterest did $139 million in revenue. And according to you, I think it was TechCrunch reporting at the time, it was shooting for 169. So it was a little bit underneath, actually a lot of it underneath what it was shooting for back in 15. Now, according to Bloomberg in 2016, it posted just under 300 million in revenue. It was 298.9. So if you're going to go from 139 to 300 in a year, that feels pretty good, I got to say. And then uh, last year, uh, 473 million, again, per Bloomberg. Rico noted that the goal was 500 million. And later on, the information noted that uh, it lost over 100 million in 17 as well as 16. So a lot of growth, still some you know stiff deficits. But um, CNBC reported that this year is supposed to get close to a billion in revenue. So a billion in revenue, twelve billion dollar valuation, pretty rapid growth, maybe 100 percent year over year from 17 to 18. I can kind of see it. But then the questions begin: What are its margins? What's its cost of revenue? You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this because it's not another SaaS business that you and I could essentially value in our sleep. This is a much more interesting company. And uh, I'm kind of dying to read the numbers. I'm really fascinated by it because I'm curious, you know, from which of its revenue sources do most of its incomes come from? You know, what are its advertiser um, uh, retention rates, all that sort of stuff. I'm just fascinated. But, you know, optimistic, I want to say. Definitely. I think that's going to be an S1 that will be actually very fascinating to read, which I can't say is true about every company. <laughs> although although I know you love S1s probably more than anyone I've ever met. So, um, 
Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, yes, that's I, I'm a very boring person. Uh, and uh, I don't see that changing uh, as I get older. So I'm going to be doing this job until someone tells me to stop. Um, but uh, turning to a company that we talk about too much, so we'll try to keep this a little bit brief. Yeah. Um, Uber may go public next year, and we're pretty excited about it. And the numbers are big. So, okay, give us the uh, the short version. Yeah, so short version, Uber's probably, I mean, Uber's going to go public next year. I mean, all signs point to that direction and then, Dara Khosrowshahi, the company CEO, has pretty much said several different times it's going to happen in 2019. The company will probably go public at like a some insane 100 to 120 billion dollar valuation. It's currently valued at 72 billion, so it's going to be a big step up. I mean, this this is an IPO that we've all been waiting for for a long time, and it's probably going to be you know it's absolutely going to be one of the biggest IPOs of the entire decade. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the company performs because how Uber performs is going to set the tone for a lot of these, uh, you know, consumer te- technology, big startup unicorn IPOs that are bound to happen um, in 2019. And just to quickly give some numbers, um, you know, they've raised uh, 24, it's hilarious. They raised $24. billion in debt and equity funding in the last 10 or so years since they were founded. And Recently, you know, they they reported their Q3 uh, financials, and um, let's see, revenue for Q3 was up five percent quarter over quarter at two point nine five billion. Gross bookings were up six percent quarter over quarter. Um, revenue grew eight percent in the second quarter from, from the second quarter to the first, and gross bookings grew six percent. So the company, you know, overall things are looking good. Revenues up and losses are falling. I know that you wrote about this, and there were a few, you know, red flags um, within Uber's latest financials. But I think overall, like, it's looking like it's going to be a pretty successful exit. I mean, so here's here's my question: though. It's a pricing game because I, I agree with everything you said. It's it, also all signs point to next year. Dara's promised; everyone expects it. Uh, it's about time for liquidity for a lot of these investors. But what if they can't get the valuation they want? Are they willing to wait? a quarter, two quarters, three quarters to go out later on, if that's what they have to do to get the revenue base large enough, then go public at that $120 billion valuation. I'm not sure they can actually wait that much longer. I'm curious if they can actually hold off uh, from going public. And if they have to go public at a lower valuation, what that will do for the kind of the unicorn sector as a whole, because it would be super bearish if Uber, the original uh, you know, hotshot decacorn, had to take a haircut going out the door. That would be much worse than a SaaS company for example, taking a slight haircut going out, like yeah, uh, Domo right. or whatever. That would, that would be very upsetting, I think, for a lot of people. But I don't think Uber can wait much longer, like for all the reasons you just said. And because investors at this point are probably so antsy for them to just finally provide some liquidity. Yeah. I mean, they, they already report really, really in-depth financials every quarter. They're essentially public, but just not liquid, which is the worst of mm-hmm. both worlds because then you don't have the liquidity and you have the disclosure. Oh, it's brutal. Um. Okay, so moving on, we promise to keep the Uber bit short. If you don't want to hear us talk about Uber anymore, please have your company do fascinating things and send that in and we'll stop talking about Uber. Um, so Lyft. Lyft is also a – this is a less certain 2019 IPO, I feel, because there's been a lot of chatter about Lyft going first ahead of Uber, but I feel like I've heard that enough times now that I don't really trust it. But Lyft, if you didn't know, it's like Uber but smaller and uh, only in the U.S., and it used to have mustaches on its cars. Now it doesn't. Yep. Um, 
So I have some numbers for us in case you're behind on, on where Lyft is. This is uh, per the information, if I recall correctly. It's first half 2018 revenue. So the first two quarters of this year, it did $909 million in revenue. Now, recall that Kate just said that uh, Uber did, what was it, $2.9 billion in one quarter? Yep. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's much smaller than Uber. But again, it's only domestic. So kind of expected. It grew 120% from the first half of 2017, so quite impressive, but it lost uh, $373 million in the first two quarters. So that gives us a net margin, if my uh, division is correct, of about negative 41%, which is pretty steep for a company that's raised as much money as it has. Um, I bring it up here as a question mark because if it goes public before Uber, it could set a precedent for valuation multiples for kind of ride-sharing revenue, and that could reprice Uber ahead of time. So I'm curious to see if it'll be able to do that because I, I, it feels smaller and less mature in some ways, but also maybe it can be more nimble. Maybe it can get out faster. I don't really know. But if one of these companies goes public first, the other one can then possibly discount its rides in that other company's core region and therefore drive down the public company's margins, which would be a very interesting kind of um, profit war dynamic that people have talked about for several years now. So yeah. we'll see. I don't know. Okay. If you were to bet a quarter, like maybe like 50 cents on this, who goes first, Lyft or Uber? I think Uber 100% is going first. Um, Tell me and why. I think, there's a lot of, I think I, you know, it's hard to say why I think that. I just think, for, for one, I think there's less riding on Lyft. I agree. I think they're much more nimble. I think it's going to be a relatively uh, seamless exit. I think, you know, Lyft is a great business. I, I think it's an awesome company. And I think they're going to have a successful float. But as far as why, I I just think, like I said before, Dara has made so many promises that they're going to go public. And, you know, there's all these rumors of like having tapped investment banks. And I just think that they have taken more concrete steps. Um, I know that Lyft has also taken major steps in that direction as well. I just think uh, it, I just think it's a more natural progression for Uber to make that crazy huge exit and for Lyft to sort of keeping on brand with how it typically behaves, sort of Smooth, more smoothly, more under the radar, kind of make its way to the public markets. It sounds like you're saying they're more on brand by following, but didn't quite say it. I was expecting you to get, kind of diss them there. I mean, um, it's true. In, in a sense, they are. I mean, they were second. And I think it, it would be on brand for them to follow in Uber's footsteps and sort of learn from Uber's mistakes as they have done from the beginning. And that's not to say, that's not to take credit away from them, because I also think that they have a completely different approach with how they've scaled, but still, I think it's sort of on brand. Well, I, I like I like Lyft a lot. I've been a Lyft user forever. Um, and so I'm kind of excited to see their S1 as well. All these companies are going to drop the most fascinating documents. Um, yeah. I'm kind of counting down. I, December is going to be so boring this year. I don't I don't know what we're going to do with 31 days of boredom, but January is going to be, is going to be amazing. Okay, finally, our fourth decacorn they make a public in 19 is uh, Airbnb, as mentioned. And if I recall, they're worth $31 billion. So a little bit less than half of Uber. Um, but tell us what's going on there. Yeah, a little less than half of Uber, but I think it makes them like the second or third most valuable company. So they're still a, a monster of a company. And I think of all these, I mean, Pinterest as well, but like I'm pretty skeptical that this IPO will happen in 2019. And even, you know, Brian Chesky, the company CEO, seems skeptical himself at um Recode's code conference in May, he said, we will be ready to IPO next year, but I don't know if we will. And pretty much all his comments have been kind of like, you know, we can, but will we? And like, yeah, okay, they can. And, and you know, as far the, the most recent numbers coming out of Airbnb are very impressive. In 
Q3 2018, the company said it was their strongest quarter to date, where they saw, quote, substantially more, quote, than $1 billion in revenue, which is a very <laughs> interesting way of putting it. But, you know, even if it was just a billion in revenue in one quarter, that's, that's really impressive. So Airbnb is making a lot of money. And I think just today, they announced that they were going to be starting to construct homes or something very, you know, they're, they're expanding their business in crazy ways. They're scaling, they're growing rapidly. I think they're on track to, to hit the public markets. And they've, to date, raised uh, $3.4 billion in debt and equity funding. And they haven't raised since September 2017. So that's usually a sign that is they're looking to probably, you know, prep for the for the IPO. But we'll see. Maybe they'll maybe they'll raise another round in December and it'll give us something to write about. Yeah. Hey, remind me if I'm or tell me if I'm wrong here, but didn't when they announced the uh, the one the greater than one billion dollar revenue number, didn't they also say they were EBITDA profitable? Yes, they did say that they were they were profitable on an EBITDA EBITDA. <laughs> Yeah. My least favorite acronym that I despise. Uh, yes, wait, they are. That's yeah. your least favorite acronym? Surely there are worse ones. Like No, that one's pretty terrible. It's terrible because nobody really nobody outside the circle knows what it means and it's like constantly used. Oh gosh. The only one that comes to mind that's worse all of a sudden is JSOC, but there there gotta be worse acronyms than EBITDA. Because at least EBITDA is like kind of like cute and round and fuzzy. I don't know. It's 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 seven no, wait, wait, six letters. It's just too much. Uh, earnings too much. before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, right? Yeah, but I ha- wonder how many people actually know that. E-B-I-T-D-A. If you didn't know, now you do. See, equity brings the information to the people. That's what this show is for. <laughs> um, okay, on, on a more serious note, uh, Airbnb lost its last CFO. If I recall kind of the rumors, it was because he didn't get along with the CEO who wanted to do outlandish things. And the CFO being a CFO was like, well, what if we didn't do that? Um, well, yeah, because I, I think the last CEO, Lawrence, I think he just CFO wanted, he wanted to set the company up to have a really successful IPO. And he was making all these hard calls about keeping the company in line. Meanwhile, Brian Chesky has these crazy, really innovative ideas. And that's why, I mean, you know, he's he's to credit Airbnb is, is a really awesome company and he's done really cool stuff. And he has to dream big in order to make that, you know, in order to continue that growth. But the CFO also has to do keep the company in line. So I think it was just not a good match. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see how um, this Amazon executive stepping into Airbnb, how he sort of fits into this culture. Yeah. And if you want a bit more on the Airbnb story, I don't, I don't have to plug books because I feel it's kind of crass, but uh, The Upstarts by Brad Stone does have a lot of good notes on the Airbnb story. Um, and I don't think it gets as much play as the Uber founding story. So if you want to dig in more, there's a good book for it. But uh, to wrap us up, because we've gone a little bit longer than I wanted us to, uh, here's just a thought. If you kind of take Uber and Lyft and Pinterest and Airbnbs, I think their most recent individual private market valuations and stick it all together, it's about $130 billion, if I did my addition correctly. So if I'm wrong, fact check me. That number is probably going to go up when they go public, right? So let's say it goes up a lot and they're worth like $200 billion. Just for perspective, that's still like less than a fourth of Microsoft or Amazon or Apple. So we give these companies a lot of play and a lot of credit, but also let's keep in mind the scale of where they are. Um, but either way, if they all go public next year, for example, that would be an enormous slice of the unicorn market going liquid in one time period. And it's going to be fascinating to see what that does to uh, the both private and public markets, because that amount of money changing hands always leaves a mark. And I'm going to be fascinated to see um, who goes first and uh, how well it goes. Me too. All right. Well, that is equity for this week. We will be back next week with uh, the full crew. I think I'll be in SF. Connie will be in SF. It'll be a great old time. And uh, we'll see you all then. But thanks for sticking with us. And uh, bye. 
All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. <laughs>